As of this recording, stocks are up 50% from the March lows and within a whisper of an all-time high. This is occurring only eight months from the onset of a global pandemic that shut economies across the world. To add to the seeming disconnect, U.S. citizens will go to the polls in a few weeks to vote on one of the most polarized and still tight elections in some time. Today, we'll address these issues and other confounding questions on your mind. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. Joining me for our conversation today are our co-heads of Bernstein's Investment Strategy Group, Beata Kerr and Alex Shaloff. Beata and Alex, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Hello. So obviously, you guys, there's a lot to cover, and I want to make sure that we get through as much as we can particularly as it relates to the key questions on our listeners' minds, like the disconnect between the economy and the markets and the, the election and, and what to do in the face of all of this uncertainty. So, um, Beata, why don't we start with you? And I guess let's level set everybody. Would you mind detailing our investment strategy group's perspective at this uncertain time? Thanks, Matt. And really happy to be here. Whether it's an uncertain time or a certain time, I think we always recognize that we have markets that are forward-looking. And at periods of time of inflection points, those forward-looking markets can certainly feel disconnected from the reality and the headlines of the day. And suffice it to say that also the speed of headlines and the magnitude of headlines these days feel bigger right? And potentially worse for many people. So look, when we start with our perspective, we start by addressing probably the most commonly asked question we hear from our clients, which is how is it that the market seems so disconnected from the real economy? And our answer here is something that you've already said. You know, the market is looking forward and it's looking toward gradual improvement back towards normal, really at some point in 2021. The market has accepted that we will have a substantial earnings hit this year, but that companies are emerging from that earnings hit and not all sectors are affected equally. So that's really point one. Point two, in terms of our perspective, is the market a monolithic thing, right? Or are there really subcomponents of that market return and opportunity that look really different? And the answer here is the market is not a monolithic thing, right? So we quote the S&P, we say how the S&P has done, and through September 30th, you know, the market's up about 6%. But one of the most notable differences in this market environment from prior times is the dispersion of securities within that index. And the tech sector, and really five or six stocks in particular, have stood out this year with very substantial gains. You're talking about gains north of 60, 70% year to date when the vast majority of the index is either flat and some of it negative, right? So a huge difference between high growth, high momentum stocks, really mostly in the technology sector and the rest of the economy. And our perspective on that is you wanna be balanced. Right? Our perspective is that you don't want to be too one-dimensional in your approach to investing. And that applies to global exposure, that applies to exposure outside of tech, that applies to exposure outside of growth stocks, and it applies to market cap and even bonds. So I think those are really the important points, that the market is forward-looking, focusing on a return to normal, 
the market is not monolithic and you don't want exposure to just these five or six names that have led the disproportionate share of outcomes. And oh, by the way, there is an election, which we're gonna be talking about more and that's gonna be a pivotal event for market outcomes going forward. Great, thank you for that uh, perspective. That certainly is helpful just to set a framework for the rest of our conversation. Alex, let me turn to you and I wanna dig in on, on Beata's first point and the point that I made about the market rallying. You know, off the bottom, which was mid to late March of this year, the S&P 500 is up roughly 50%. And we get a lot of questions from our, our clients about whether or not that market rally is justified. What's our take? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I think that the question about being justified or, or not justified is an interesting one. What you have to do, though, is break down the components, the drivers of what has really been behind the return, that, that massive recovery off the bottom. And it starts with the federal government in the U.S. It starts with the Fed, the central bank, and the support mechanisms put into place by the Fed in the midst of the crisis in March that have continued. And they have signaled not just explicitly, but implicitly that they have our back, that they are going to be in the markets as buyers. They'll be supporting important markets and they will, to the extent that they can, they will prevent a significant drawdown. And then you, you couple that with the federal government's actions to provide stimulus support, spending packages that have gone to individuals, they've gone to companies, they've gone to the hardest hit areas of the market. So investors have, have reaped the benefits of the government support that has existed pretty consistently over the last six, seven months. And by the way, that's occurred while things have started to, early days, early days, but things have started to recover. If you look at traditional metrics, you know, things like unemployment are starting to trend in a more improved fashion, weekly jobless claims, and, and all of the things that we rely on over history as an indicator of the direction of the economy. At the same time, we have access to alternative data sets. You know, we can look at things like Google searches and, and get real-time data on how people are using various search engines on the internet. Are they pulling up maps? Are they searching for restaurant reservations, obviously for takeout more prominently, but are they searching for travel, for vacations? And while some of that is aspirational, it is, you know, it's, it's an expression that things are turning. We can look at traffic. Traffic readings in major markets around the country have, I don't know if you want to say improved or, or worsened, depending on how you read it, but the traffic is back. And that too is a, a pretty good proxy for economic recovery. So all of this is really supportive of the market's future. Yeah, Alex, I, I think you laid it out uh, really well in terms of a progression from monetary policy support in the early days of the crisis to fiscal policy support that followed after that. I often, when um, explaining this, add on the hospital system and the healthcare response also were very helpful to providing confidence in the form of you know, wearing a mask, social distancing, that also helped. And so all three or four of those have fed through to an undoubtedly an improvement in the economy in the United States and across the globe. Now, I have to admit, guys, that that when I deliver this answer to this number one question, I get a lot of pushback. I, I get um, pushback from clients who say, well, you know, I walk around my local town or my community and then I see businesses that are closed that haven't opened and probably aren't going to open again. And I worry about the, the restaurants in town. And, and I think all of that is fair. We have to admit that, that like Beata's point about being monolithic, the economy 
is not monolithic and not all industries are being affected the same way. That being said, if we were to, to break down the, the U.S. economy and the U.S. labor market, only 10% of the U.S. economy in terms of contribution to U.S. GDP is in the challenged areas of accommodation and food services and, and arts and entertainment and transportation. Only 10%, meaning 90% of the economy is not in those particular acutely impacted areas. And 20% of the, of the labor market is in those same challenged areas. So I think we have to acknowledge that there are certainly industries that are taking it on the chin, but we don't want to overstate the significance of those industries. It's only, depending on how you measure it, 10 or 20%. That's right, Matt. Uh, Beata said it, I think, the right way. The market is a forward pricing instrument. And no one is saying we're back to normal. 2020, the year 2020, will be a trough year for earnings. What we're looking for as investors is some signal that there will be a turn, that while we're still in a period of weakness, things are turning, that we have some of these pockets of opportunity or that we can see them coming, often not the far distance, but, but close by. And we're getting some of those green shoots. The economy as a whole, you pointed out the components that will be laggards, but the economy as a whole has begun its recovery. And we're starting to see that in earnings expectations for the next couple of years. So if, if you just think about the sequence from 2019 to 20 to 21 and then to 22, start from 2019 to 2020, you almost have to write it off. You have to put a just kind of scratch it out on the paper. Don't even pay attention to it because, you know, here we are in mid-October. We're already looking to 2021 and the market is as well. And there's an expectation that things will be better. We'll be back close to the 2019 levels. We'll basically be back to pre-COVID. And then what you're seeing is a broad expectation for a true earnings recovery in 2022. And that's what investors are focused on, the path of earnings growth from here. Yeah, Alex, I would like to wipe out 2020, personally. <laughs> so, as you propose that, I think it's a good idea. We should, we should think about that. Put that on but the then, ballot. Yeah, yeah, I think we all would like to not experience this year. But all kidding aside, let me, let me pick up on where you ended, which is the notion of earnings and how the market thinks about earnings. And then back to this broad question about the market. And it's is it reflecting overall earnings or is it reflecting earnings out of a particular subset of companies? And I want to come back and really put some meat on the bone for my earlier statement about the concentration in the index and the tech stocks. I mean, the numbers here are really staggering. The highest market cap weightings in the S&P, when we look at the top five companies at the end of the third quarter, and we're about 23% of that overall market. And even in 2000, really at the peak of the tech bubble, that number was, was 12%. The highest it's ever gotten in the past was 16%. So we're notably higher concentration. And so here's another way to think about it. Those top five stocks, again, through this similar time period in combination, were up you know, about 35% year to date. The S&P at that point was mid-single digits, and the other 495 stocks that were in the index were down seven, right? So the spread of these outcomes 
is so wide that that's something that we are keeping a very close eye on. And the question is, why? How? Well, the answer has been that these companies' earnings have absolutely led the recovery to this point. Right, these technology companies powering the back end, powering our Zoom life, powering our online shopping. We all know the reasons. So the question is, where does it go from here? And while these companies have had a greater bounce in their earnings, and while they have you know, the benefit of the consumer continuing to spend and mostly stable balance sheets, there are some new risks. As the economy broadens out in its recovery, you're gonna see those earnings start to broaden out in other sectors. You also are gonna see, you know, we're gonna to pivot to the election conversation, but you're likely to see regulatory risk really start to pick up for this sector as there's ongoing scrutiny about the magnitude of their outcomes and their influence on the economy. In 2016, some particular companies, right, there was a lot of focus on social media companies and their impact actually on the election. So we're keeping these issues front and center when we think about exposure for our clients. And our view is also not monolithic, right? The case for diversification is a strong case today as these risks grow. And our view and our exposures to these companies is really a company by company analysis. Okay, great. Beata, you mentioned the election. Let's get to that elephant in the room. This is an election that, as I mentioned earlier, that has polarized the country, arguably would set very different paths for the country and for the economy over the next four years and possibly longer. So, Alex, let me come back to you. With now less than three weeks to go, why don't you discuss how we're thinking about the election and its potential impact? Thanks, Matt. Clearly, I drew the short straw to be the one <laughs> to talk about the election. But let me just start by saying we look at history. There's a, a saying in investing that, uh, that this time is never different. People always want to say, well, this time it's different. Every time people say this time is different, it's not different. So while this election feels like it's really, really different, it's actually not that different. If you think about what the key differences in platforms are, it's a key one is a, a real change in tax policy. And we've had changes in tax policy. We've had changes in tax policy in the 80s, and then again in the 90s, and then again in the 2000s, and then again just a few years ago. So you can get comfortable with the idea that there will potentially be change and start to build forecasts based on potential changes. The, the real question, and this is, as you noted, Matt, we're just a couple of weeks away from the election. This is really what it comes down to, a divided government versus a unified government, a, a, a divided government where the executive branch and the legislative branch are, are held by different parties um, and, and or otherwise known as gridlock. And gridlock historically has been the best outcome. Little change is something that the markets can get comfortable with. They can forecast around modest incremental shifts, nothing sizable. It's different this time in that we can't afford gridlock. I spoke before about how the government financial support of imperiled households and companies, sectors was so critical in not just supporting the markets, supporting us as investors, but supporting the economy. We can't afford to have that go away, not, not at this critical juncture. We're not out of the woods. And by the way, that's part of the reason why over the last few weeks, as Vice President Biden has built a, a polling lead, polling, big underlying, you know, italicized polling lead, that as investors expect a potential blue wave, the market reaction has not been as bad as what people had 
expected maybe a few months ago. Now, we've been saying that for a while. We actually said a blue wave is, is not that bad. And the dynamics of the market are that as Biden has extended that lead, the market has found that that outcome may not be the worst thing because we need financial support from the government to get through the worst of this crisis. And even think about the last few days. We, will we have stimulus? It's almost there. There's lots and lots of productive discussions. You know, uh, Mnuchin and Pelosi talked for 65 minutes. You know, everyone's charting this. But then there's a break, and you would have expected the market to have a significant sell-off but it really just shrugged it off. It shrugged off this idea that we wouldn't have a package because there was some expectation that if Biden wins, we'll likely get something. Now, look, that's not to say that this is gonna be a, a smooth and easy ride through the election. You typically get volatility around the election day, but it's not been that extreme. It's different this time. That is where it is different. We expect to see more volatility. And actually, we're digging in on the 2000 election numbers and what the hanging Chad episode meant to the markets as the results were sorted out in Florida over the course of a couple of weeks. So look, from an advice perspective, Matt, you didn't ask, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, this is not a time where you wanna make big significant shifts in the portfolio, given how close this election seems to be. I, I, I tried to accentuate the fact that polling data is just that, it's the polling data, it's not final election results. So do not make a big position change based on an outcome you think might happen. It's really just too close to call. Our portfolio teams are managing on a daily basis changes in, in, in the environment, but I would not recommend that an investor take significant action in their portfolio in advance of this election. Very, really important point, Alex. And I want to I want to underscore because I think it's well worth it. Your point about unified government and what's different this time. You know, if we look historically, just to put some numbers to it, uh, gridlock government was up uh, on average about 10 percent per year going back several decades to 1937, whereas a unified government was up only 8.2. That is where we think it's different this time. We think it's different this time and that the, because the economy is so weak, it needs help, it needs fiscal support, and your best pathway, your easiest pathway to fiscal support is through a unified government, which then leads, Alex, back to your points about a blue wave not being as bad as, as some people maybe originally had thought, and why I think as the probabilities of a blue wave have increased over the last week to 10 days, why the market has moved closer and closer to all-time highs. So thanks for that, and thanks for the, the comments about the advice. Let's stick with the advice, Beata. we got to start to pull this together. What's our final advice? for the next six months for all of our listeners? Well, most of our listeners are investing for much longer than six months, right? And most of our clients are with us for decades. And I think that framing is really important in my response because although the news cycle has moved to an intraminute time frame, right, with 150 character limit, our investing approach has not. While we can make changes quickly and while we have been very responsive to market volatility and portfolio positioning can evolve, we have to keep the long-term objectives of our clients in mind. And that long-term framing informs my answer to the six-month question. If you've got cash, you should continue to invest, right? It's not a time to play the odds on what the various scenarios might be because waiting for a market catalyst or a signal has not been productive over time, right? Whether it's the election outcome or whether it's a vaccine possibility, you know, if you looked at waiting back in March compared to where we are today, 
that didn't serve you well, right? So creating a diversified approach with a reasonable risk profile to meet your long-term goals and frankly dollar cost averaging into that if you're coming from a cash position is a very reasonable approach to achieving those long-term goals. If you're already invested, right, and you're worried about the different exposures that you have, reach out to your advisor, talk about your risk profile, think about what's available to you as an action step if an action step is necessary. But based on the number of permutations here that we've laid out, it's not just who's in the Oval Office, it's who's got control of Congress. And then even with unified government, will tax policies really meaningfully change during a substantial recession? We don't have the answer to that. But if it's possible that they do, you know, some of the biggest opportunities to take action will really be around planning and tax policy more than individual security positioning or even allocation questions. So again, reaching out to your advisor to talk about your own unique circumstances is the best advice we can give. Great. Thanks a lot, Beata. Guys, we're going to have to leave it there. There's certainly no shortage of cross-currents for investors to contend with today. And, and I think it's safe to say that those cross-currents are greater now than they are normally. And so for that reason, Beata, your comments about advice and diversification are particularly important. So now as trusted advisors, we look forward to working with all of our clients and to frankly, to being their stewards through this uncertain time, whether it's six months or much longer. Now, finally, I want to give everybody a heads up who's listening today that we'll be recording another episode of The Pulse shortly after Election Day. And for that episode, we're going to sit down with our key portfolio teams to share their insights on the markets and how they're positioned at that point in time. Until then, thanks for listening, everybody. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Pulse on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and find us on Instagram at Bernstein PWM. Thanks for listening. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.